Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Um, and we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Richard Barcellus, uh, pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, um, teacher at the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, um, as well as Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, and author of numerous books, one of which we'll be discussing this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Barcellus, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Can you hear us okay, Dr. Barcelos? Yeah. Okay, okay, just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Um, So before we begin uh, talking about uh, the book, Trinity and Creation, a scriptural professional account, uh, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, what you do, where you're coming from uh, before we start today? Sure. I, I'm married um, for 35 years. This, we have five adult children, uh, two grandchildren out of the womb, one grandchild out of, in the womb. And um, I have, uh, I'm the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, which is in northern Los Angeles County up in the high desert. I teach, as he said, at RBS Seminary, I'm a Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, I like to eat, unfortunately, <laughs> and exercise. Uh, Weights hit the sun. <laughs> it's a good balance to have. Good balance to have. <laughs> um, so the discussion today will be revolving around um, your book Trinity and Creation: A Scriptural Confessional Account, um, which really. Dives, yeah, there you go, Sean. Uh, dives into the the doctrine of God, uh, particularly as it relates to His creation. Chap, you talk a lot about Chapter Four of uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, so, what inspired you to write this book, and why do you think the doctrine of the Trinity are important that they go hand in hand in creation? Yes. Well, um, I. I, I wasn't inspired uh, to write the book uh, in the first place. I was I, I was tasked with delivering lectures, four lectures, at uh, the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference uh, in 2017. Was when uh, in the fall of 2017 is when I delivered the lectures. But I'm I'm a part of the committee that plans uh, the uh, the conference, and so I think it was 2000. 14, maybe 15, that I was asked with this uh, with this chapter, chapter four. And as I got to, uh, you know, so I was given two or three years to prepare. We try to give the guys advance notice uh, so they can do that. And so, you know, I started getting into the secondary literature, studying the confession. I outlined it, uh, made a preliminary outline for my lectures, and I hooked on 4-1. And I thought, this is this is huge, you know, a Trinitarian um, confession of the creation of all things. And so the more I drilled down into the document and the sub, the uh, secondary literature behind it, and then broadened my horizon by studying um, not only the post-Reformation era and Reformation, but going back into the creedal history of, of the Christian church, the more I was just overwhelmed with the uh, importance of the distinction between the creator who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
and that which is not the creator is creation creatures us and so the 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 the, the uh lecture ended up being four but i had tons of material got uh good feedback from the lectures mostly good feedback from the lectures and uh, um i thought to myself you know in the past when i've delivered a lecture or lectures and i've gotten feedback i've turned some of those into published published materials maybe I'll, I'll i'll beef up the lectures and see what happens so i did and then the way i do it is when i think i've gotten to the point where my manuscript convinces me that i'm right i, I write to convince myself uh, that i'm right um that i i never write outside the bound i hope of christian orthodoxy once i got convinced this is a product that i would be pleased with i sent it out to some editorial readers then i sent it out to potential endorsers. Give endorsers the ability to push back and correct any heresy. And uh, I'm very appreciative for that. So when, when that happened, I started searching for sure, and, and it was published in 2020. And by the way, I think that my subtitle answers the second part of your initial question. Um, the subtitle tries to encapsulate what the book does. It suits you for Trinity and creation, both scripturally and confessionally. Uh, both the scriptures and our confession, which that's that which is probably true, uh, have a clear doctrine of the fact that ju just not God generically is the agent of creation, the creatures, uh, patients, that which is acted upon. But in particular, the Trinity, the triune God, is the agent of creation. That's my. Oh, we might have we might have lost you there. I think we lost you in the last part of your sentence, sir, Doctor Rosales. Well, can you still hear I, us okay? I can hear you. Okay, okay. Yeah, you just have broken up there a second. Um, I think you were you were talking about um, how you formulated the book um, and the why the doctrine is so important. It's it's consistent with our confession uh, that the triune God is involved in creation. It's not just God in general. It's not just uh, God as a, a generic idea, but it's the triune God of Scripture. It is the agent of creation. Uh, I think that's... Uh, that's what you were summarizing. And that's one thing that I found very, um, uh, I think that was very interesting about the book. Um, it was how much was packed into chapter four of our confession. I think it's only three paragraphs, if I remember correctly, but there's so much uh, that is uh, that is packed into that confession. And you were, uh, you were quick to point out in the book that uh, it builds upon the previous chapter. So chapter two on the doctrine of God, um, chapter one on scripture um, and chapter three, which I think was the uh, the divine decree. It builds upon all of those uh, components and assumes them in this chapter. So there's a lot there, even though it's a very small chapter in the confession. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, moving on to a little bit of the meat of the book on page 30, you discuss the concept that creation is simply put um, God creating anything that is not God creation is uh, anything but himself. 
Uh, why do you think that was an important distinction to make? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let me put it this way. God is, full stop, creatures come to be and mutate. And become to be something in initial state being. They get older. Uh, this is the creator-creature distinction that, that our confession employs. Uh, and I think it's first revealed to us in the scripture in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God uh, created not God. The heavens. So given this distinction, creator-creature distinction, in order to account properly for both God and creatures, we must know uh, something of the nature of divine being and something of the nature of, the, of, of creaturely being, if we're going to account for these divine acts. So we could put it this way, divine being is creaturely being becomes and is upheld in its existence and it is changed by the unchanger uh, who is God. I know that old phrase, the unmoved mover. Most, a lot of Christians don't like it. But if you change it, change it slightly and say the unchanged changer, that is God, keeps God and change God and creatures, creator and creature, distinct. Very important. So if the creator, for instance, is immutable, infinite, a pure act, no potential in his being to become something other than it eternally is, it's, uh, impassable and eternal. Uh, that's true of God, and creation is not, and cannot change God, nor does God change us. So this provides, uh, I think, a hermeneutical grid uh, through which we, we ought to interpret scripture. Uh, for example, when scripture predicates wings or a finger uh, to God, how do we understand these? How do we account for these? You know, if God has literal, um, really existing wings and a finger, then he uh, then he has these things eternally and immutably. But I don't think most people want to say that. Most don't want to say that God has really existing wings. Or existing, you know, space, uh, space extending finger that has uh, finite, that has limits to it. I don't think most people want to say that. So the, the creator creature keeps us from interpreting texts like that, anthropomorphic texts or with reference to divine wings, ornithomorphic texts, uh, keeps us from interpreting those literally uh, or really. It's metaphorically uh, symbolizing something. Uh, uh, because God is invisible. He doesn't have wings. He doesn't, uh, there are no defined features which extend into space in some limits or unlimited uh, passage. Um, so divine wings and fingers must be interpreted metaphorically. 
or improperly. They must uh, indicate something, though. They're real words trying to something that real God, not that he has literal wings or li a literal finger. Uh, I think wings probably most likelyifies a divine protection and God's finger most likely signifies God's power in execution. So, um, I think those are very important things and those are fleshed out in the book. You're muted, Sean. Um, having uh, read uh, one of your other books, Getting the Garden Right, I, I, I gather there's a theme with you about um, building on uh, hermeneutics, making sure your hermeneutics are right, and then approaching the, uh, the uh, texts, because um, that was another book that uh, dwelled very uh, heavily on uh, proper hermeneutics. Um, let's see. Um, on uh, page 41 of the book, uh, you discuss the notion of creation not changing who God is. Why is that so important um, and that we need to remember that when we're thinking about the creation account? Uh, that that uh, that creation does not change God. Yes. Virtue of creation. Um, we we have to ask ourselves: Who changed God? Did God change God, or do creatures change God? Now, I don't think most Christians. Yet that I know, uh, and that will probably listen to this podcast to change God. But some say that God's transcendence, the creatures, requires some bridging of the gap. God is holy. Uh, divinity transcends creatureliness. There's a gap. And it has to be bridged uh, some way, somehow. However, uh, one creatures are uh, uh, one's creature existence. They are ever in God's presence, though God still transcends the creature uh, in terms of creaturely being. Um, so God is not time bound. God is not space bound. Uh, God is not bound in, in any sense that would make him finite in some sense. He is of a different order of being from creatures. And so if we view it that way, then we could say, okay, God brought being into being that had no being without changing the being that brought the being that had no being into being. And I think that's important to get, as weird as it sounds. Yeah, and I think that tends to be... Um, an issue when we think of creation, we think that God became the creator when he created the world instead of thinking of him as the eternal creator. Um, you know, with our finite minds, it's hard to think back in that sense. You know, when the Bible talks about God create doing things before the world began, even that type of language is limited because from God's perspective, there is no time. God is eternal. God is timeless. Um, but these, uh, this language to help us to be able to understand what is going on with God's acts in relation to the world. Um, I think sometimes we tend to read into that literally instead of actually 
uh, remembering that God is pure act and that he does not change. Um, so yeah, having that distinction um, between the creature and the creator and understanding how God uh, created the world without changing to himself it is very important. But, um, and unfortunately, I, the evangelical world today, I don't think has a grasp of this. Um, and um, it seems that the the church as a whole for quite a while, even across denominations, seemed to, to confess this doctrine, but it seems to have just fizzled away over time. Can I follow up on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, go right ahead, Pastor Rissos. Said you wanted to follow up on that. Yes, yes. Did God become created that is the question that is a good question Future didn't exist yet yes. was there a time that god did not exist no does god have to uh, the name the title creator is actually a creaturely name. It's our term for God. But when we assign God creatorhood, we're not a change in order to create. We're just creatures trying to name our creator. Um, just like king and lord, uh, you know, the sovereign over. No. Creatures come into existence, then are subject to, to the creator that doesn't change. We call him things as we relate to him. As we come into being, as we are moved in our being, as we are brought to our terminus or end. But none of that changes God. It's just us and it changes the way we name him. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I think some of these errors, um, you know, you talk about them in the book, going on to the next question, um, in the chapter, Changing God-Given Curation, uh, in which you critique the proposals of John Frame and K. Scott Oliphant, who did recant his errors on covenantal properties uh, publicly. Um, but why do you think that these two men took the approach they did um, to the doctrine of God uh, in addressing these difficult issues, particularly with God and his creation? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. Well, I think because they, they were attempting to account for some, some very difficult issues in theology, and I commend them uh, for that, uh, their attempts. Um, from what I tell, I think the rub on this uh, for these men is how to account for both divine transcendence and divine imminence. And the way John Frame uh, attempts to do it is that Frame says that God has two existences, one atemporal and the other temporal. And I want to quote him. He says, my approach recognizes two modes of existence in God. 
and just prior to that he says the difference between god's atemporal and historical existence is begins not with the creation of man but with creation itself so that's what frame posits and i think it's in the context of trying to wrestle with among other things transcendence and imminence now dr uh, k scott oliphant posits god taking on uh, covenantal properties in order to create and relate to creatures uh, in his book uh, that's now out of print uh, god with us he says this that god freely determined to take on attributes characteristics and properties that he did not have and would not without creation so i think that both frame and oliphant see some sort of gap bridged if god is going to be imminent to his creatures um but i think there's a fundamental problem with our proposals both uh, frame and all and i think it involves a creator creature distinction i think what they're doing is in an effort to account for divine imminence uh god is near us god is here um oliphant's proposal entails that god revealing himself to creatures cannot be both transcendent and imminent so must become something he was not there's this language of in order to create in order to relate god assumes these covenantal properties so god acts in this new manner of existence in order to reveal himself to and and into interact with us uh, for eternity now um, i hinted at this before this this assumes a problem with divine transcendence if god is going to reveal himself up to creatures i think the thesis their thesis uh their understanding of the issues assumes that there's an ontological problem that must be overcome uh, all as three between the being of god and the creation um, i don't think there's such a boundary or a problem now obviously we have to distinguish there is a massive ontological difference uh between god and creatures but this doesn't entail a relational boundary uh, let me quote somebody stephen newby says god has no gap bridge in order to draw near to us and in fact we can only exist where he is in him we live and move and have our being that's it and then um bobbing says implied in creation is god's transcendence and god's imminence not a problem to be absolved a uh, 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 resolved but but both exist at the same time in terms of god's being it is over and above and other than and distinct from creatures in in concern in uh, in terms of where god is creatures are always in his presence therefore ubiquity omnipresence or uh, divine eminence with creatures and i think the bible teaches this very easily in one more psalm 75:1 says we give thanks to you lord our god we give thanks for your your wonder 
purpose works creates some provenance here. Okay. So um, the works of God are revelatory of the fact that he is here. God does not need to overcome God in himself to become God with us. God doesn't have to tinker with God in order for God to reveal himself as God. I often assume a working tenet of uh, aspects of what some call theistic personalism or mutualism, namely a given in theism. There are ontological natures in the eternal God which must be overcome if divine eminence is to be. I don't think that problem really exists. So I think they did to eternity in one sense um, and gave weight to an argument that people outside their theological tradition have made um, and then they tried to solve the problem. I don't think the problem exists. I think both transcendence and eminence can both be true at the same time without God having to tinker with himself uh, in order to be Yeah, it seems like, um, well, it, absolutely, it seems like that they are compromising the doctrine of divine simplicity, um, especially with regards to uh, Dr. Oliphant bringing in the covenantal properties or frame saying there's there's two modes of God, so to speak. God is now uh, broken up into different sections, if you will. Um, and so I think there's issues there fundamentally. Um God has the ability to change. He's essentially he's able to succumb to his creation because he's taking on new being as his creation is changing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of problems there uh, with uh, their approach. Yeah, can I can I follow up on that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think either man wants to and intends to deny or tinker with different uh, simplicity, at least in a general yep. sense. But I think, uh, on the other hand, you're right. You know, if we think of the covenantal properties proposal, God approves to himself, God assumes these perfections, characteristics, attributes, properties that he did not uh, uh, without creation, um, that means to take on an accidental entity, let's say, and to to bring it into. Let me do that with my my gray hair, not my hair, but my gray hair. <laughs> um, Grayness and hairness. Grayness is alters um, my hairness, and it it adds a quality to it that's not of its essence, uh, and yet it alters it. So, you know, using the language of a bell, um, because there's then some potential in God, uh, something latent in God that can be maneuvered, uh, 
molded, morphed, shaped into something that was not, and so added to, composed. That's what you were getting at, at simplicity. Another thing about the covenantal properties thing, I mean, I think in footnotes, quoting other people, it makes you wonder what gets revealed to us. God in himself, or God as he has approved or assumed these created properties. And um, then we have to ask ourselves, we really don't. So um, that's my pushback on my follow-up to that. So next question. Yeah, um, it, going on to the next question. So chapter six, you talk about uh, what you call the doctrine of appropriations. And I, I admit, I, I struggled with this. This was a difficult chapter for me to grasp because uh, it, it forced me to think of God in, in new ways. But essentially what you talk about is that the act of creation must be attributed to all of God and not just uh, specific persons of the Godhead as distinct from others. Uh, that they, only certain parts of the Godhead are doing uh, certain acts of creation or, or, or actions that are outside of himself, what you called ad extra works. Um, so how do we uh, reconcile that with verses that seem to appropriate to specific persons of the Trinity certain actions, like Colossians 1.16, where it talks about Christ making the world, uh, John 1.3, uh, the Spirit is hovering over the waters, Genesis 1.2. Um, how do we... Uh, reconcile those. Okay. Uh, uh, your question is about uh, specific text. It's a very good question. Let me amend uh, two books. Uh, that I think would help uh, listeners. One is an, an introduction to the, that book came out after I wrote my book, but it's very helpful and it's written uh, not to the academic theologians, but it's written to church people. So that book, and then also another book that was written for popular consumption is Simply Trinity uh, by Matthew Barrett. And I endorsed that book. Um, primarily because he covered so much ground, did it in a readable fashion, and dealt with um, very issues, including appropriations, which is a new term. I don't think the concept's new to people, but the term's new, and what uh, the theologians have called the inseparable operations uh, of God. Um, so I recommend those two books. But let's start with appropriating. Here is what else. The attribution of an essential reality of a divine action to one person in a special way. So I'll just leave that. Let me try to explain. The doctrine of appropriations claims that sometimes the Bible attributes the common external divine work of creation to a particular person. You referenced three Creation is appropriated in those texts to the second person, to the son. Um,
But then we read, by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. Uh, a reference to, I think, the hovering of the spirit in Genesis 1-2. And there are other texts that appropriate the work of creation from the produced effect. I mean, what I mean is from the producer of the effect, the other person. So when John 1-3 says nothing was made except uh, nothing was coming to being uh, except by him, the son, does that mean uh, that the spirit and the father are not co-agent creation? Only the son is the agent. Because God acts, says he is, and he is father, son, and Holy Spirit. So the question is, how do we account for this approach in scripture in light of the fact that the external works of the Trinity are undivided? That means that creation, undivided work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If the external works of the Trinity are undivided, how do we account for the, the, the biblical pattern of attributing peculiar divine works to peculiar, a particular divine uh, persons? This is a huge question, and that's what appropriations tries scriptures an act of God to a particular divine person. creation to the Son. Does that mean divine persons? Distance uh, uh, act or do things apart from other divine person. In other words, can the Son as God act as God produce an effect without the co agency of the Father and the Spirit? And if the answer is no, What appropriation says, the Bible sometimes a, a distinct divine act to a particular divine person to not include the other person and to reveal something of the mystery of the Trinity to us. Now, this is a this is a huge, huge question. Okay, time in book first establishing the foundation. And then try and show uh, uh, the doctrine of appropriations, which I think is contained in the uh, in the chapter on infection. Of, of, you can read the book for all the details. But I spent a lot of time establishing a foundation, and then in chapter six, doctrine leaned on John Owen, you know, for some historical help to show you that I'm not the first one that argues this way. It's very complex in one sense. Uh, I think the, 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 the Barrett book and the Swain book recommended will really help uh, more typical style and the manner. But you know, we have to be careful because if we say, uh, well, the father can act independent of the son and spirit. Then we are saying that the Father has a will that he executes in isolation from the Son and the Spirit. Will and execute his will 
apart from the will and execution of the Father. Pray that new divine will, divine word. But the Christian Orthodox historical tradition in terms of the, the Trinity acting would say that divine persons act according to the according to nature. And they would the petitioner would also say divine persons act independent of other divine persons according to the singular divine nature. Because they wanted to make sure they didn't become uh, a binitarian, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, tritheists, where you had three persons willing independent of each other. Now you'll get contemporaries like Bruce Ware saying things like this. The Father could act independent of the Son and Spirit, but he shows his humility in soliciting their co-agency and change in creation and redemption. And, and it, it's uh, uh, orthodoxy. I don't want to get too more in depth into this stuff. I think what he said too much. If you're interested, read the swing book, read the bear book, and read my book. Oh, that's very helpful. That for me personally, that helps me to to understand that better. And I do want to revisit the chapter in your book. And I have uh, I saw Matthew Barrett's book, and I've, I'm eyeing that to to purchase it. And it seems to to capture the orthodox Nicene view of of God, biblical view of God. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. Um, and Sean, I'll turn it over to you to uh, finish off the questions. Yeah. Um, so moving away from the the book a little bit. Um, what inspired you to begin publishing uh, particular Baptist literature? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what the year was, 2001, two, three, somewhere in there. Uh, one of my friends, Cisco Orozco, um, texted me, or uh, excuse me, emailed me, says, you need to start a uh, theological journal. And so I think I replied, he said, well, you, you live in the States. Uh, people know who you are. And, and we needed to start a journal. I said, I can't do that. I don't know. What, you need to help me. So, so the Reformed Baptist Theological Review, which published 11 issues from about 2004 to 2000, whatever, um, was actually Francisco Roscoe's idea. And they says, bro, we need, you need to do other books too. And I said, what do you mean you need to do, do that? I can't, I don't know how to do this because he's the, he was the tech geek. So um, it was basically Francisco's idea. Around the same time, I'd be, I'd been developing a deeper friendship and uh, appreciation, real appreciation. Um, two things, two documents. One was um, Owen on the Old and New Covenant from his Hebrew commentary, um, which I'd read in the Hebrews commentary, but this was a different version of it. 
slightly modified, uh, modified. Um, and then he also sent me another treatise. I knew that, um, but the treatise he sent was uh, his exposition of covenant theology from Adam Moses, and said a friend and I, uh, Pastor Ron Miller, who now is a friend. Uh, he said, we have this idea to publish it. Since you're starting this new publishing thing, you think you'd be interested in doing it. And it took us two or three years. I think the Cox uh, Owen volume came out in maybe 2005, four or five. Uh, but we had it. So that, that was the days of our bath and uh, kind of the rest is his try to focus on the level focus on more academic stuff and I have this new series that I'm excited about recovering our confessional uh, Dr. Renan has a couple uh, volume they have one we have I mean um, and I, I hope that um, that's been helpful I didn't put this out thing upon myself it wasn't my idea. It was uh, Francisco Orozco. So if you, uh, you can thank him. If you don't like it, you can blame him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say for um, the men's theological read at our church, I think we've definitely done one or two. I think it was two of the uh, Recovering Our Confessional Heritage books. So they've, uh, they have been helpful. I will say that. Um, what has been the uh, response of uh, the Reformed Baptist community um, to uh, you going through and you and everybody else involved and uh, publishing these uh, older uh, particular Baptist works? Yeah, good question. Uh, thank you. I think the response has been good. Uh, my desire was to assist confessional, 1689, Second London Confessing church, Churches in their, uh, not in their evangelism, but in their discipling, in, uh, in their intellectual and spiritual, spiritual nurturing of their sheep. And so I think RBAP has done and is doing that, at least. To a point, I have no notions that we're the only ones doing it. I think others are doing it, uh, doing it as well. The 1689 federalism thing is an in, in, interesting thing. It's not a label of uh, identity or pride that I carry around or anything like that. Um, it just kind of evolved. And um, here's how it happened. Okay? Sam Renan and myself were asked by Brandon Adams if we would be interested in doing some videos for him. And here we have this Cox Owen volume out. Here we have this older particular Baptist. But the majority view of the 17th century, later 17th century particular Baptists on a distinct view of covenant theology is starting to evolve. Lectures are being delivered and all that stuff. Brandon wanted to do a video. All of us said, 
sure. So we did it in our respective areas. Uh, Dr. Renahan did it, uh, I think, in his study down in Escondido. Sam Renahan did it in their church building, and I did my videos here in my living room. I actually still wear the same shirt. So we did it. It took time for Brandon to edit it, get it all together. Looked great when we watched it. He says, "Brothers, send sends us out an email." And Brandon, if I'm getting this wrong, you can correct me wherever you want and make me look, you know, dumb. Whatever I need to look at, <laughs> if you have to correct me. But I'm pretty sure Brandon sent us an email with various options on what to name the website. Okay, one of them was 89 Federalism, and he gave the arguments for it. And I think we all said, "Sure." I think he had other names for it. So we said, sure, because in his thinking, and I think he's right, if you have this right term label, 1689 federalism, and you name what you mean by it, this is it from other uh, that have their own explanation, and, and that that's fine. wasn't looking down our nose trying to be good theologians. We're trying to be like Turton says, we distinguish. And so that's uh, that's the only thing. Now, Abel that's been attached to me because of those videos has caused people not to buy our back books. I, I think that's pretty sad. We weren't drawing the line uh, asking for a fight or anything like that. We we're just trying to be honest with history and our own convictions. And I, I hope people can appreciate that. That's my answer. Yeah, it's been very helpful. Those videos were very helpful. Um, and I think that, um, you know, recovering our heritage as particular Baptists is important because they did have a, especially in covenant theology, they did have a very specific view. Um, and it seems that even among Reformed Baptists, even among good brothers, um, there are differences in how covenant theology is to be viewed. Um, so I think it's helpful as we're studying our confession and the scriptures um, in the in light of a reform historical reform Baptist uh, lens to be able to go back and see what did they believe, what were they writing. Um, I'm reading Sam Renahan's book on uh, federal, uh, what was it, the federal theology of the early English particular Baptists, I think it's called. Um, and that's been very enlightening, but recovering all of this history. Um, so we appreciate you and the other brothers, um, Sam, James, um, and other men involved who are helping to recover this has been very helpful. I know for me personally, um, and I think as we teach these things or people in our churches and, and tell people who we are as particular Baptists, it's very helpful and informative. So thank you for that, uh, Dr. Barcellus, for your work in, in helping to get this literature and uh, art, these historical teachings out there. Um, and thank you for joining us today on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, and for all those listening, um, be sure to check out Dr. Barcellus's uh, new book, Trinity and Creation, a scriptural and confessional account. Um, it's very helpful, not a very long read, um, but it's packed full of good biblical material. Um, and I hope that you are, benefit from it as much as I have. And with that, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Barcellus. Really appreciate your time. Um, and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care. God bless.